This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2018 Launchpad Pilots Competition. Now in their fifth year, the Launchpad competitions have helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get staffed, and led to four bidding wars. When you enter your pilot script this year, you'll save $15 off your entry just by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout, as a special thank you to our listeners. For more information on the tracking board's current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we are going to talk about working at a TV production company with longtime listener, first-time caller, Logan Creedy, who's been a development executive at a number of production companies, including Superb Entertainment, Bare Bones, and currently Escape Artists. Hi, Logan. Hello. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. All right, let's get into it. <laughs> So first up, just tell us a little bit about your background. Where are you from? How'd you end up in TV in LA? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I am from the East Coast initially. I was born in New York. I was raised in Florida. I spent some time in Jersey, kind of bounced up and down the East Coast for most of my life. I decided to go into entertainment after after seeing Cats when I was very, very young. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> the the musical, yeah. And, uh, and I think from that, I started having a love for theater. I started doing a lot of stage work in high school. I've been in two productions of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which is just... Uh, were you the dream coach? I was not the dream coach. <laughs> um, no, but it's like one of the most Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals of all Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. And so I had a lot of experience like that in high school. By the time that I was going to college, I felt like I wanted to pursue entertainment. And so mm. I started with my undergraduate doing TV production, which was a very technical and production heavy degree. So a lot of mm-hmm. that was focused around here's how you edit with Final Cut, and here's how to light a scene, and here's how to use a camera. So very like basic, bare bones, I almost say like trade level type work. From there, I was working at Universal for a little bit in physical production and on the feature side, but I always felt like I wanted to be a little bit more creative, and I wanted to produce, whatever that term means, because it could be a very nebulous term at times. <laughs> mm-hmm. I felt like I should understand a little bit more about business and get a business degree for that. So I decided to go to grad school and get my master's degree. I studied at Syracuse, so went back up to New York for that. In the middle of New York, where it's a lot colder than uh, than Florida. <laughs> I enjoyed the seasons. Um, but Syracuse, honestly, was a fantastic experience for me. The graduate program they had there taught me so many things that I use day-to-day in my career now that I would not have known coming out of just straight production for my bachelor's. You know, I took classes like film financing and distribution models, classes about the TV ad sales business. There was a script writing class that I took, even though I'm not a screenwriter, and that was very helpful to teach me about the mechanics, about characters' journeys and arcs and stakes. And there was even what they called a TV production class where you produced a six-episode web series. And the process of that actually mirrored very much what we find in the actual industry out here, Hmm. at least within the studio system, working with traditional networks. And it's funny because at the time, as a student, I was very frustrated with the tasks that our teachers would have us do and they felt to me either inefficient or there was useless there was like no point to them but by the time that i came out here and spent enough time working in the industry i realized wow this actually so (laughs) closely mirrors that there is a point to all of it and sometimes education is not at all appreciated when you're a student but it was certainly useful at the time what made you want to work in tv did you have sort of early tv show favorites I did, yeah. When I was younger, I was obsessed with friends, as I think a lot of people of our generation. Yeah, nice. Who's and, your favorite friend? You know, it's funny. I always <laughs> said, 
when I was growing up, I said I was more of a Chandler, but then as I got older, I felt like I was more Monica. And I feel, coincidentally I feel enough, you. yeah, they ended up together. So like maybe I'm just the hybrid love child between the two of them. <laughs> um, no, and then as I got older, Loss actually is in one of my top five shows of all time at this point. And I think that definitely influenced me from a more like dramatic and genre perspective, which is most of the type of TV content that I do consume and am interested in producing today. And so between those two shows, I always kind of felt like TV was a big deal for me. And I loved screen entertainment, despite the amount of work that I had done on stage previously. And so by the time that I finished undergrad and finished grad school and ended up moving to LA, I knew that screen was what I wanted to do. And then from the two like main screen areas, TV as opposed to features was kind of my big focus. So just briefly tell us about some of the jobs that you've had while you've been here in LA leading up to your current one. So when I first finished grad school and came out to LA, I actually was working at a post house initially, which was a little unexpected, but it was an internship and it was a job and it was something that sort of got the gears turning and got me out to meeting people and gave me some sort of purpose day to day as I was looking for full-time employment. Beyond that, the first job I actually had was at Amblin Television, which is Steven Spielberg's company. They had four shows on the air at the time. They were looking for an office PA to kind of come in and help out with everything from taking notes on calls they had with the studio and network to designing pitch boards and character templates and other sort of like materials they would use when they were going out pitching to the networks and studios for projects they had in development. And that was a fantastic experience. I love the company. They had a lot of fun perks. They had some great people. It was a small company, which meant that you had your hand in a lot of things and you got an opportunity to really explore all facets of TV development from initially like working with the writers or finding the idea and then seeing it kind of get shepherded through the development process to like hearing them go out and taking out a pitch. And when they came back, when all the executives came back and said like, oh, it went really well, they bought it in the room or whatever. It was just a fantastic sort of like see all of that as like a first true job and get to experience all of that. And that gave me so much of a background that I just, I loved it. And, and honestly, what I loved most about it was the ability to hear so much about the development process and hear what studios care about, what networks care about when they're giving notes with writers. And that influenced, you know, certainly my career since then has been, because I work with writers at the time and developing pitches and outlines and scripts, like hearing at the time, like calls for, with CBS and what they cared about for a character's journey or hearing about calls for FX, for instance, and, and hearing the differences between the two and like what different networks might care about is for their brands, like trying to sort of internalize that as you were on the calls was just a fantastic experience for me. And that led to a lot of the way that I think about scripts and give notes today. In 2014, I left Amblin and I went to a company that a brand new production company at the time was called uh, Superb Entertainment. It was Merrill Poster's production company. She was based in New York, and she had just signed a deal with A&E Studios at the time, looking for some people to do scripted out here in LA, which meant that it was an even smaller company than Amblin. For me, out here in LA, there was two people. It was me and my boss. We were working out of a very small office in West Hollywood, wow. and we were handling all the scripted for the company. Back in New York, Merrill and the rest of the company was handling unscripted. But that was a great experience for me because it was a little bit more hands-on deck for sort of my own agency and being able to find material or make my own connections with reps and try to find good writers and good voices to work with. For me, that was a brilliant opportunity to really get my feet wet and explore sort of what it means to have my own voice and my own taste and where I wanted to go in terms of material and sort of finding stuff. That company was a great experience as it went on because I was able to sort of move up there. I was able to get a manager title and start doing actual development myself and developing some of my own pitches with writers and getting them taken out with the other people in the company. And then from there in 2016, I left to go work with Neil Bear, 
who is a showrunner who's done a lot of TV that I'm sure your listeners have heard about. Uh, he ran ER back in the 90s. He ran SVU for 12 years. And he actually ran Under the Dome for us when I was at Amblin. So I kind of knew him peripherally through that. And by the time that I was getting ready to leave Superb, I had heard that he was going to be leaving his deal at CBS and about to sign a new deal at Fox. And since I knew him already, I, I had a conversation with him and we met and he wanted me to join uh, the company. And that's where I ended up with when he joined his deal at Fox, which was a very broadcast development perspective, which is another great area for me to learn because the A&E studios of it all at Superb gave me a more cable perspective in terms of the type of projects we were servicing or the areas we wanted to go and the genres we wanted to develop in. Whereas with Neil and his experience in broadcasts, you know, almost exclusively for his entire career, this gave me sort of a new perspective how to look at things. And so that was a fantastic experience working with him for uh, as long as we did. Can awesome. you talk a little bit about those differences between broadcast and cable? Absolutely. So broadcasts certainly almost out of necessity, the fact that, you know, you have more commercials, you have these act breaks, normally you'll be building towards, from a purely structural perspective, tends to be more of a rigid sort of format, the way you develop stuff for that. And at the same time, the genres at broadcast tend to fall into a little more typical formulas, whereas cable is known for being a little more avant-garde or being able to explore something that is a little different, maybe not quite as linear. So, you know, broadcast certainly pioneered the idea of uh, these procedurals and like something that can repeat week after week. But, you know, a show like Atlanta, for instance, you might not see on a broadcast network and vice versa, though there are some certainly some procedurals that have worked on cable. But that is that was certainly most of the differences I notice. And of course, every network has their own brand and has their own sort of goals towards what they're developing. So that is a very specific thing too, sort of like what Fox was looking for versus what A&E and their family was looking for. And But those change all the time. So you mentioned that Neil's company was under a deal. What exactly is a deal there in terms of the relationship between a production company and a studio? How does that all kind of work? So a deal between a production company and a studio at its very simplest is that the production company agrees to provide material to a studio hopefully for development and ultimately for production and you know distribution which is in the tv world getting to a network and getting aired and then beyond that there are lots of different types of deals there's first look deals there's overall deals there's non-exclusive deals too and some production companies are independent so like amblin when i was there they're completely independently financed so they don't actually have a deal they can sell anywhere they don't have any mandate to do anything particular to whatever they want to do the a e deal we had at superb for instance that was a non-exclusive deal they financed us and paid all of our overhead which is very common for most deals so that the studio will pay for the overhead for a production company to exist and that includes rent or office supplies paying for salaries for the executives and the assistants and that's that's what the studio is paying for is all the day-to-day work that needs to go into actually developing material and then what they get out of it it becomes into the uh the first look at the overall part of it which is sort of describing how the material and projects that get developed go to that studio so for an overall deal Everything that gets developed has to go to that studio. And that's where the term pod deal comes in. Production overall deal is what it stands for. Although initially, people may have described it only as a type of deal. I think a lot of times these days, we just kind of hear, you just toss out the term pod as just a production company in general. You say there's a pod at Warner Brothers, a pod at ABC Studios. First look deals, uh, similar but they have the option to then go elsewhere if the studio doesn't want to pursue a particular project. So whereas in an overall deal, you know, say you develop project X 
and you go to the studio after you developed it and you say, here's our project. And the studio says, we're not interested in it. Then you're kind of SOL at that point. You can't do anything with it. So the studio would still own that and they can just sit on it and do whatever they want with it because they already paid you for it. Right. Exactly. They own it. I mean, especially here in America with copyright being a work for hire type thing, you know, they own the rights to it and they could choose to make it or do nothing with it to pursue it. But the point is that at that point, as under the overall, it's completely relegated to the studio's domain. Whereas with the first look, obviously they're paying the overhead and everything like that, but they're also paying for the right to hear something first and so to hear a pitch. So you might get a project where the studio will say, this isn't quite right for us. And then you're able to then take it and go to somewhere else. So you have a first look at 20th, for instance, and you develop some of that isn't quite right for 20th television. Then maybe after they pass on it, you can then go to HBO because maybe it's a really good project for HBO. And under a first look, you'd be able to do that. Whereas under an overall, you, it's not quite possible. What do you feel the success rate is in terms of these overall deals with projects getting sold versus going outside the deal? That's a, that's a good question. And, you know, also when it comes to overall deals, a lot of times there is some wiggle room. You know, you could have leeway by talking to the studio's BA and if they really feel like there's something still to be gained out of it. You know, for instance, like with our deal at A&E Studios, actually, because it was not exclusive, we didn't have to go to them first, but they actually ended up owning a percentage of any project we developed. So even if we sold a project to FX, A&E Studios would still get a cut of the profits from that if it went on air. So, you know, every time, every studio has a little different, I'd say the success rate is, honestly, it's, I'd say, honestly, it's pretty low, but I think that's to be expected because there's a pretty low success rate in anything in television. Right. There is, <laughs> there's so many, I mean, think about how many projects make it onto air just in like the broadcast development cycle every year. And think about from that, all the ones that went to pilot and then all the ones beyond that that got developed, all the ones beyond that that were the production companies, like the main statistics will shrink down from thousands to in the tens very yeah, quickly. It's so a tenth of a tenth of a tenth. Exactly. But there's certainly more of an incentive for a studio with an overall deal to buy from those overall deal companies as opposed to outside deal companies because they're already investing, right? They're already paying right. money and they want to see some return on that investment. In the same way, you'd be incentivized, even with a first look deal, to go to that studio first and to try to develop towards them and service that deal because they're going to be the ones who are most incentivized to buy from you and want to buy those projects. So, you know, even though, for instance, like keep going back to Superb because that was the way we were structured, even though, you know, the deal with a &E Studios was not exclusive and we could go to FX and we could develop for HBO and pitch to them, we still made sure during our development process that we would earmark a certain amount of our development on our projects toward ideas that would sell at a &E Studios and their family of companies. So Lifetime, History, H2, because we knew that they'd be incentivized to buy from us. We wanted to make sure we're still servicing that component of the deal. So obviously there's kind of two levels there within the company, even if they have the same name, like Fox or whatever, there's a studio and a network. Like mm -hmm. how do those two things differ, especially in that process where you're taking stuff and selling it on? Are, are they more likely to go to their own network or how does that work? That's actually a really great question, and, and that could be an hours-long podcast in and of itself if you <laughs> think about the history of where television came from and even the FCC's you know rules back in 95 when they had kind of overturned the ability for networks to own their own programming and all of that. That's actually a really fantastic question. From a very traditional perspective, you know, you have the main, let's just say the big four broadcast networks, Fox, CBS, ABC, and NBC, and each one of those has what you might call a sister studio, which is a separate company that exists within sort of the larger family of companies. Every one of these companies is owned by a larger conglomerate, of course. So like Disney owning ABC and also ABC Studios. But since they also fall under the same family of companies, the networks that they're associated with are incentivized to buy from those sister studios because ultimately that will all funnel into the pot of profit and proceeds the larger conglomerate can make. And that is a purely 
business thing. So certainly they are going to want to buy from their own studios because at the end of the day, that means they own their own content and they're able to get more profits sort of long tail for that. You know, Modern Family, I think, is a perfect example of a show that is produced by 20th Century Fox Television, which is the studio side, but it is aired on ABC Network. So ABC the Network pays licensing fees to 20th the studio to be able to air the show and to be able to have it on their network, whereas 20th technically owns the show and its content. So years on the line, depending on how ABC wants to renew their contracts, 20th can then take that show and put it in syndication somewhere else. They can make profits off it that ABC could not because of the fact that it is not owned by ABC Studios. All the major networks have their own sister studios, and there are a couple other major studios out there that don't have an associated network, like Warner Brothers, for instance, technically has a component of the CW, but that's also shared with CBS. Lionsgate, of course, doesn't have its own network, Sony, but a lot of them will supply programming to the major networks. And this can all change with the Disney Fox merger that's coming out. So <laughs> oh, that's yeah. going to be an important metric to see by which the government and how the industry is going to change. Just going back to overall deals, mm-hmm. what do you think studios look for in production companies with whom they make those deals, whether it's a creative issue or a success issue, what I feel uh, they're looking into? I would say... It's funny, I was thinking about this last week. If you look at the gamut of production companies out there, I'd say by far the majority of them stem from creatives first. So you have an auteur, right? Or somebody who is a very well-known director or very well-known writer or a particular actor. And a lot of those come from them because the studio recognizes the value of the brand and that person's name. And then from there, they want to sort of create more content that's going to be recognizable for the viewers because ultimately more viewers creates more eyeballs, creates more advertising revenue and more profits down the line. And from that, I'd say track records are most important too, especially on the producer side because producers, you know, especially when you're first starting out, you don't necessarily have a name to trade off of as much as a established writer or director or creative like that, like an actor might. But producers, certainly there are producers out there like Aaron Kaplan, for instance, who most of America might not have heard of, but they have a fantastic track record for the shows they do produce and the shows that they have that do get on the air. So that's why people end up making deals with them. Like I think CBS right now has a deal or they have part of an ownership stake in Aaron's company. But that's what you'd see for a lot of those sort of companies. I think, for instance, like just go to ABC with Shonda, right? You know, she was a writer first and an incredible writer at that. And she developed a very particular brand and a very particular style. And that, you know, you, when you think of a Shonda Rhimes show, that you have a very particular idea in your head of what makes a Shonda Rhimes show. And ABC at some point said, this makes a lot of sense. We want more of these types of shows. Let's sign her to a deal. Now we're going to pay for her overhead and her ability to develop more of these types of shows. And they got more of those shows on the air until Netflix. And then Netflix said, me too. <laughs> yes. So what was your day-to-day like as a development exec at a production company? What kind of things are you doing on your typical Monday to Friday? The best way I've been able to describe development for people, especially for a day-to-day, I want to explain development first as a general process, and that is getting material to be in its best possible shape. That way, people down the line will say yes to it. And so that is applicable to a wide variety of things, right? It's working on a pitch. That way, people are going to want to buy the pitch. It's working on an outline, even for a show that's already been ordered. That way, the studio will say, yes, go off and make a script. Like in development, you're trying to develop the material and get it to the best spot. That way, nobody on the line wants to say no to it. They want to say, yes, this is great. This is fantastic. Go and run with it. Keep going. Produce it. Yada, yada. And so far, most of our day-to-day involves reading a lot of material. I'd say a good 80 to 90% of the job is almost exclusively reading. And that comes from even just trying to find material to working with the material you already have, reading the pitches, the, the documents, the outlines, the treatments, the scripts themselves, 
you know, 89% of our day-to-day is just reading this and sort of getting your own feel for what shape the material is in, how it can be better, do characters' journeys track, is everything making sense, are there no logic questions or plot holes as you go through the story, if you're developing something for broadcast, does the act breaks build to a climax each time, like stuff like that, which is a little bit more of the, the nitty-gritty, but that's most of the job. And then, of course, the rest of it is giving those notes after you've read them and discussed hopefully with your partners whether it's other people in the production company or the studio network themselves and communicating that back to the writers to get that you know sort of that next stage and then the other major component of the job is trying to find the material to develop and finding other sources that you might want to adapt or try to take ideas and and say like okay this is going to be something we're going to work on and because we know that like they're really interested in this uh, world or something like that and how do you go about finding that material is it based on ips spec scripts or existing writers that you know (laughs) it's based on everything honestly um we live in a world right now where ip is such an important aspect for this industry especially on the feature side you hear everybody talk about how everything is ip driven and everything Mm -hmm. is a part of a franchise everything part of a sequel and then you have sort of the indie film world too and that is certainly true to an extent in television as well i'd say it's always easier to sell something when it's based off existing ip because Everybody from the studio and the network can see where it came from and they can see sort of how it existed in an original form and they can see the idea of the potential and they can see it sort of living and breathing on its own to begin with, as opposed to something that's more original where all you have is the pitch or the idea in a writer's head. And that's not to say that's not possible, certainly, but IP is a huge part of it. And IP can be anywhere. IP can be plays. It can be other TV shows and formats from abroad and international. It could be podcasts you know there was a a show on abc this past season that Mm -hmm. was based off a podcast and like it could be books it can be articles be life rights there are so many actually just yesterday and nbc announced they're doing a pilot based off this book called bellevue which had the life rights of a doctor who did um all these you know incredible cases and work with all these patients like on rikers and a very historical perspective and like that was a book that i read a year ago and like it's essentially life rights at that point is like this person and like who he is and sort of how he told the story and, and the interest of what he did. And, you know, finding IP can be done anywhere. And it's a huge, huge world. Reps certainly help with that because a lot of agencies represent certain particular pieces of IP or writers or particular periodicals. So like some agencies will only have like, say, all the rights to every Atlantic article that comes out or every New York Times article that comes out. So sometimes there is a, an easy funnel there if you you know find something that you want to do. And then to your other point of asking the question about where you find the idea, sometimes you will work with writers and you will say, you know, a writer that you have a familiar or an existing relationship with will come to you and say, hey, I have this idea for this really cool sitcom or here is this soap opera that I've been sort of like developing in my head. And that you guys might be interested in pursuing as well. And if it aligns sort of with your taste or if it aligns with the taste of where you think your home studio, if you have one, might be going, then you might decide to put something like that in development. Or even you might have an idea yourself. And because, you know, like, oh, I really want to work in this sort of world. And this writer I know is really interested in those worlds. And then maybe I'll pitch the idea of that world to the writer and see if they are interested in it as well. And then you have a project. So speaking of those writers, how do you find the ones that you want to work with? And what is that working relationship like between a writer and a production company? So a lot of production companies, not all of them, but a bunch of them are represented by agencies. And so you will sort of have a home agency where you can go to to find writers. 
and the agents there or the reps, uh, you know, even at management companies will be able to pitch writers to you and say, this writer is coming off the show, or they just made waves because they just won some award in a script contest. And like, we think you should read them and they'll give you a piece of sample material to evaluate and see if you like it. And that's one of the biggest ways is talking to agents and talking to managers and trying to say, like, who do you know that's really interesting or who do you know that's working in this world or this area we want to get into? And and even just generally, like, here's somebody who I think you should be aware of because I think you might click on a personal level, too, because a lot of times working with writers, you do want to be able to have a relationship with them that is friendly and certainly not only business. And so maybe there's, you know, just a writer that even though they're not working on any projects right now that might be relevant to your company, you might just really hit it off as two people. And like, you might want to work with them eventually, you know, because a lot of times you will go from company to company or networks will shift mandates. And, you know, what might not have been appropriate a year ago suddenly is now relevant and super hot and people really want that type of work. And now you already have that relationship with that writer and you already know that they can write well because you've read their material and they just go off on it. Otherwise, you sort of find writers just through so many different programs or competitions or lists that go around the industry. And those are fantastic resources, even for writers who are starting out as well, is to sort of go to those competitions, try to apply or get a script, win an award through them, or try to get your name on one of those lists. Because a lot of development execs will pay attention to those. And a lot of producers will read sort of like the top of the top that come out of those and try to mine, you know, for all those and say like, okay, here's like the top 10 that made it to the blacklist last year. And like, I've read 10 of these and like, these really spoke to me or these have a good tone that I really, really enjoyed. And so you try to find the writers who are making waves and are working and hopefully are good people as well and at the end of the day still have good writing because that's that's what what it comes down to is is where the written word is most important well speaking of this may be probably the broadest of questions but since you're reading so much material what attracts you to a script what makes a script stand out amongst all of them i would say a specific point of view is probably the most important thing that stands out to me uh, when I'm reading a script. Certainly, a hook is great. And like, if something is going to be really exciting or interesting in the first five or 10 pages, that's fantastic. And yeah, it's usually going to keep you to want you to keep reading. But at the same time, there are there can be very good scripts that will take a little bit longer to develop and have that sort of more slow burn pace at the beginning. But if it's still written specifically and written uniquely and written like that, it's so compelling and captivating that you just want to keep finishing it. That's what ultimately matters. And by specific, I mean, somebody that knows the world and the characters they're writing about. And it doesn't mean you have to necessarily have experienced everything yourself. So you're trying to write a story about somebody whose father just passed away. It doesn't mean your father had to have passed away in order to write the story, but maybe you have lost a loved one or even you lost a pet or something like that. And you take the emotionality of that, you take what you felt and you put that on the page and you give that to your characters. And that's what sort of gives it a specificness. And that's where you find the relatability, certainly for the reader or somebody like me, which will ultimately then go on to everybody else on the line in the process that is going to be reading it as well from the other executives you're trying to convince to pick up a project or the studio you're pitching it to. Sort of in that specificity is where you find the universality. And that idea of the applicability and the relatability and sort of Finding somebody who knows this world or this feeling and this tone so much and able to write so specifically to that and they care about this, clearly this piece of writing, that is number one for me. Because it's clearly because when you have somebody who's passionate about it, they're going to want to work on it, even without getting paid. They're going to, not that you would, but like, they're going to care about it, right? They're going to 
want to make it the best it can be. And they're not just going to look at it as just another paycheck or another job. It's something they really need to tell. And that's really important to us. That is the real definition of write what you know. Write what you know is about writing the emotion, not literally what you experience in life. Circumstances, yeah. And would you say that that kind of POV and specificity is what a lot of people call like a writer's voice? Or is it something slightly different? Is it part of that? I think it definitely goes into it. Absolutely. The POV and the specificity and sort of what the writer has experienced in large part informs what they will write about, which then can, of course, influence the tone and the genre. But I'd say how you express it is also a huge part of the writer's voice. You know, just like I mentioned earlier, a Shonda Rhimes show, you know, has a very particular tone and a very particular genre and the way her characters talk in the same way that like very many uh, Joss Whedon shows have very specific um, the way he his characters talk of the rhythm to their dialogue, like Aaron Sorkin too, same sort of thing. Like you have a writer who is so unique in their tone and the way they express themselves. That is so much part of their voice. And that's fantastic too, because that can elevate something that, you know, might not be as relevant right now to somebody's development mandate, but it's so written so well and written so expressively that you just want to keep reading it because it's entertaining. And because at the end of the day too, that is what we're doing, right? We're trying to entertain people and hopefully telling stories that matter and mean something and have a theme. But if it's entertaining to read and it's fun on the page and it's going to hopefully translate to fun on the screen. And so that, that sort of tone definitely all kind of rolls into the voice. Going to the executive part of your brain, when you're looking at material, how often are you also basing your decision on a particular brand or mandate for your own company? Very often, actually. Yeah. As producers, we are ultimately the sellers on a project. And just like anything else in commerce or a buyer and seller market, you want to make sure you're selling something that buyers want to buy. So yes, there are passion projects. And yes, there are ideas that might originate within you that you want to work with a writer on or a writer that has this really cool spec script that's already been written and you just love the tone of it. But a lot of the time you need to make sure that you're developing towards a mandate that is going to actually sell or going to actually be bought in this in this marketplace. And a lot of times it's easy to do that when you have a deal because you know what your home studio cares about and you know sort of what their mandate is. And a lot of times you will have meetings with your studio, sort of like these state of the unions where they'll say like, we really want medical dramas this year, or we're really looking for workplace sitcoms opposed to like family home life based sitcoms armed with that information. And a lot of that is called network needs from a shorthand from our development perspective. Uh, you sort of know what people are buying and what they're looking out for. And that sort of helps aim towards that direction as you're evaluating scripts and evaluating material and saying like, okay, this is a really, really good script. But right now, it's not what, if you have an overall deal with 20th, it's not what 20th is going to want, then we don't want to put it in development right now. But it's really, really well written. So this writer is fantastic. So maybe we can find something else to work with this writer on, because maybe their voice would be perfect for this other idea that we've had that we know 20th does want, and maybe the writer will be interested in working with us on this. So paying attention to what people are buying and what the networks and studios sort of as a mandate want from you, I think is very important as we're evaluating material. And the same thing goes even for brand as a production company perspective, I think I had mentioned earlier, like Aaron Kaplan's shows and Shonda Rhimes shows and like all those, they have established a brand themselves. And a lot of times they will try to find material that fits within their own brand as well. Of course, you can go off and find the thing, the outliers, but a lot of times it's more the exception of the rule. Do you feel it's actually easier to reshape material that you really engage with to fit that need? Or do you feel it's actually easier to find a script that does fit that box? I'd say it's easiest to find something that already fits the box. Reshaping material is tough because a lot of times, especially if it's a well-written script, it is written with such a, and going back to specificity, right? It's written with such a 
particular tone and intent in mind that if you're trying to shape it towards a direction that it wasn't ever meant to be in the first place, you'll end up rebuilding a script to the point where it is barely, it could be only a shell of what it used to be. And you're going to lose so much of what made it it really right at that point. So I would say more often than not, you will, you won't find something like that. I mean, it certainly has happened, but more often than not, you're just going to try to find something that does fit with that brand or hopefully shape something from the beginning. So say you have an idea for a medical drama. There's a lot of medical dramas out there. There's medical dramas that are procedurals. There's medical dramas that are serialized. And so like knowing sort of where, you know, your home studio might be looking to buy, you can just say, okay, here's the genesis of the idea. Now, as we develop it, as we go through the development process, let's make sure we're developing our characters and our premises towards that eye as opposed to just like being a little more open with it so now when writers get that note it's not for us they know what you mean when you're saying that (laughs) yes absolutely (laughs) and then nbc goes this is us (laughs) so let's uh delve a little more into that actual development process if you can talk Mm -hmm. us through how you go about even from the early stages pitches decks treatments scripts all those different kind of documents and how that kind of works for you guys I'll just, I'll pretend like we're starting from the basic beginning of an idea, although certainly if there is an existing script that's been written as a spec that cuts through a lot of it because it just arrive at the script stage of the process. Um, but so you have an idea, the idea can either be from a writer or it could be from you yourself. If it's from the production company's perspective, you'll want to try to find a writer to attach to it, to work with you. If it comes from the writer themselves and you already have an idea in their head from that process, you're going to want to start developing either a pitch or a treatment for the show itself, which is going to include information about the characters themselves, um, where they sort of go throughout their series, what their arcs might be, what the setting of the show is, what the tone is of the world. Is it a comedy? Is it a drama? If it's a comedy, is it more of a multi-camera comedy? Is it more single cam? If it's a drama, is it soapier of a drama? Is it more of like genre? Sort of like figuring all the elements out. And you'll eventually get all that stuff together into a pitch document or a treatment for the show. And this could also be included into like a show Bible. Sometimes depending on the process and depending on the type of show, you'll find sort of what naturally fits into one way or the other. And so you're going to get this this document that has you know basically everything that makes the show the show or at least makes the show what you feel it is in your heart and in your minds between you and the writer as the production company um at that point you will hopefully start pitching it places um you'll try to go to studios traditionally you'll go to a studio first and you'll go to a network there are certainly instances where you'll go to a network first and you sort of back it into a studio at that point but from the most traditional route you're going to go to a studio first and you're going to go in with that pitch document And you're either going to have the pitch right there in the room with the people from the studio, or you're going to send it to them in advance or send it to them afterwards, the actual documents, they can reread it themselves. But ultimately, you are giving to them this vision for the show. You're telling them, here is the show. Here is what we're talking about. Here is our themes. Here is what the tone is. Here is how it's going to feel. Sometimes, like I had mentioned back with my experience when I was at Amblin, you'd be developing separate pitch materials like mood boards and character boards. They can have visuals, which are useful in the room to sort of give an idea of like what the show might look like or sort of the archetypes you're going for for the characters. You're going to tell them about your characters and sort of what their flaws are, what their journey is going to be throughout the series. And ultimately, you're trying to convince people that this is a viable show concept, that it has legs, that it has sort of room to grow throughout the season and throughout multiple seasons beyond that. It's, it's funny when you talk about pitching shows, I was most recently doing some reading for Universal's diversity initiative, and that was all feature-based. And it was such a unique experience for me because coming from my experience almost in TV exclusively, you know, where we care about like, is this pilot going to work 
eight season on the line, whereas in features, it's like, holistically, it's just one and done. It's all you have to care about. So the show and the pilot and trying to pitch this idea towards a studio network, you really want to make sure you have enough room for your characters to really have journeys years and years on the line. You want to have that potential. You want to have room for growth. And some you know very specific auteurs or writers might have like an idea for the show and say like, okay, this is going to be a five season show. We know exactly where this is going to go. And very specifically in the Bible, it'll say, this is where the character's journeys end up. This is where the show ends. Like, this is that. Or you might be a little more open-ended and say, like, okay, this has potential and like, here's where it might go in season two. Here's where it might go in season three. Obviously, eventually you'll have a writer's room. You'll have conversations that certainly th- that trajectory can change. But at some point, hopefully, the studio will say yes to that and they will buy it from you. You'll go through development with them. That means they're going to be giving you notes as well. And then you're going to give those notes back to the writer. It's going to go through more changes. You're going to hopefully then get to a network where they're going to want to purchase it as well. And then they're going to give you notes and they're going to get the notes to the studio. The studio's going to give notes back to you. And then the whole process repeats itself, rinse and repeat for a very long time. <laughs> and like I said, initially with the idea of development being trying to get material in the best shape possible, that way nobody wants to say no down the line. So first it's trying to convince the studio to say yes and buy it. Then it's trying to convince the network to say yes and buy it. Ultimately, you want the network to get to a pilot script stage and you're going to want the network to say yes to that pilot script. And you're going to want the network to say, yes, we want to actually make a pilot off of this or the super gold and just go straight to series order. But hopefully, you know, you're going to make a pilot out of it, which means you're actually in production. You can actually get to see what the script for that pilot, that one episode looks like on screen. And then hopefully that becomes good enough that they'll want to say, yes, let's make a series out of it. And then you're off in production and you get on the air and then everybody's happy. How long might that process take from an idea through to getting a pilot and hopefully a series ordered? So from the broadcast perspective, it's actually really easy to break that down. And I'll use that as an example because it's one of the more rigid ones and it's more easy to explain. There are very defined sort of cycles in broadcast development. There are seasons that, you know, I'm sure you guys have heard about and people talk about all the time, like development season, pitching season, pilot season, staffing season, all that sort of stuff. So I'd say generally, considering from basic idea out to hopefully getting something ordered to be you know on the air, the process might take anywhere from nine months to a year. Early summer, I'd say mid-summer is about when ideas will start to be generated. You'll start hearing pitches or you start reading specs from writers around July, August or so. Beyond that, you'll start pitching them to your studios and to your networks and trying to get them to agree to buy it and put it in development. You'll be developing that all the way throughout the fall and most of the wintertime. Usually most of the networks will kind of take their holiday break to read all the pilot scripts as they've been developed and say like, okay, which isn't in a good enough shape for us to go ahead and make a pilot out of it. Then come January and February, hopefully you'll be getting pilot orders and you'll be saying, yes, we want to make this. The pilots will be made over the next couple months. By late April, May, you'll start having an idea of when the pilots come in, like who's going to get ordered actually to series. Beyond that, hopefully you get a series order and then you start staffing up and the room starts like that next summer. And then the whole process starts all over again for for new ideas because you always <laughs> want you always want new shows and, and more development. And that process is certainly very closely mirrored in the cable world as well. It might not be as defined in terms of the times of the year. It's a little more amorphous in that case. And certainly for streaming digital services, you know, there are people are buying all the time. But I'd say generally, you know, depending on whenever you start in that process, you can track nine months to a year before something actually gets definitively, yes, we're going to make a series out of this. And then beyond that other few months before it actually gets on the air in production. And that could change so much if something gets like ordered straight to series or, you know, it's sort of accelerated timelines, but that's a, a good general. So sometimes you hear about projects getting stuck in like development hell. And what does that mean? And what does that do to the process? 
So that complicates the process greatly. And it certainly, <laughs> you know, frustrates a lot of people. And but ultimately, that's not necessarily a bad thing for the project Should the project eventually find life because it means that at that time with those elements, the project was not right to go forward, whether it was because the writer couldn't push to that finish line or because it wasn't the right writer for the project or because the network and the studio sort of had a change of heart about what they wanted. You know, ultimately, development hell just means things are going to be staying in development, right? It means it's not nothing is ever progressing forward on it. They're going to spend months on just the outline and you're never getting ordered to the script or something you might go to script and you don't get a pilot order and you want to try to redevelop it next cycle. And then that happens again and you still don't get a pilot order. And then so eventually it just it gets stuck in this sort of limbo where you feel like you've worked on this project for so long and this idea, this this genesis has been with you for such a long time or with a writer for such a long time, but it just hasn't gained any traction. And it can be very frustrating because you want your work to go forward, right? And you do care, hopefully, about the projects you're working on and you want it to actually get, everybody wants to get on series. We don't want to just work on the page, but you know, 90% of what we do in this industry is theoretically and on the page before anything ever sees the light of day. And development hell can be frustrating because sometimes you're able to sort of get out of their limbo or sometimes it just kind of stays there forever and the projects die in there because nobody wants to move forward on it. And that's unfortunate. And maybe they can be revived. Like as an example, when I was working with Neil Baer, a pilot that he had written a decade ago when he was under a deal at NBC, when we joined Fox, 20th was really interested in it and they bought it out from NBC. And that was a project that didn't go forward 10 years ago, but 20th was really interested in it and they bought it and they moved it forward themselves to a certain extent. So like there certainly things can come back. It doesn't mean they're dead forever, but it certainly does get annoying when things sort of fall into that state. And regarding the selling process at studios and networks, when you go out, how do you gauge that break-even point between compromising to sell a project and keeping the creative integrity of the thing that you fell in love with in the first place? As producers, like we are close to the creative aside from obviously the writer themselves. So it is really our job to protect that and our job to protect the creative. And if somebody comes in as a buyer and they feel really strongly that they're not going to buy something unless like you do X, Y, and Z, or you, you change some integral component to it that isn't what aligns with your vision or the writer's idea for a show, then you have to have that conversation and you have to like say like, no, this is a sticking point for us. And like, this is a deal breaker. We're not going to go forward with this because it's not the show we want to create. Because yes, you do want to get things sold, but at the same time, you don't want to necessarily compromise. And if there are easier things to sort of come to an agreement on, certainly you will negotiate that and you'll like change a character's gender, for instance, or you might like change something about where a character comes in or parts of the story in terms of the tone, or you might eliminate somebody if they're not tracking. But if it's something that's so vital and important to the central idea of the show, that's really on us to try to protect and make sure we stay strong to that as much as possible. Because we want to service our writers. We want to make sure that we're actually telling the stories they want to tell. And ultimately, I think that's better for the studios and networks at the end of the day. Because, again, when you have a writer that is passionate, they're going to care about the project. And they're going to care about making it as much as possible. And if the buyer ultimately decides to change it so much to where it is unrecognizable for the writer, that's going to be a frustrating process for everybody down the line. Because now you're just going to be butting your head up against the wall the entire time, <laughs> yeah. and nobody's going to care about it, and that's just going to be a subpar work. So moving to the business side of this process, how does the financing work? Like, who's paying for what out of the production company, the studio, and the network? Like, is someone paying for the scripts and development? Who pays to actually shoot the pilot? And then on top of that, who gets to kind of participate in the, the profits at the end of it? That's a really great question, and something that you should definitely ask a BA person at some point, um, <laughs> because... Uh, 
it can be a very complicated like quagmire of legal agreements and certainly you know who gets paid first and like when the profits come in and even from the film side it's very confusing and of course take all this with a grain of salt because it's impossible to say generically for every project every company um but most of the time if it's a script say there's a spec script that's already been written right you're going to enter into an agreement with either production company or the studio or both to have the rights for that project and that's usually an option you're not gonna buy the rights outright you'll buy the option to buy the rights in the line that can come from the overhead that a studio will provide a production company if they have a deal some production companies will have their own sort of independent slush fund that they can go out on option material on their own sometimes the deals will include that as part of the contract sometimes an independent producer will just go off and say i'm going to buy this option myself because i really want to get the rights for it and so that is dependent on every single project beyond that once you start getting to the process of actually getting something into development, that's where profits or at least some sort of fees will come into the production company and the writer will be paid for their drafts like per WGA minimums and sort of the guild requirements or whatever that can be negotiated by there on their agent's behalf. You will then get you know paid for those drafts and that work you are doing at that point. And then beyond that, if something gets ordered to pilot, uh, the studio is the one who is paying for most if not all of that. The network certainly will pay fees and like I mentioned earlier in the case of ABC and 20th for Modern Family, you know, the network will ultimately pay licensing fees for a series. And a lot of those licensing fees sometimes can make up the bulk of production costs for a show. But then also the studio that has options to recoup those profits on the line by either by syndication or by selling the rights in, you know, foreign or overseas territories. And then ultimately, going back to the production company and the writer, you will then get paid per script or per episode as defined by the contract that you and your agents negotiate. So you'll then, you know, if something gets ordered to series, you know, you may have a provision in your contract from the pilot that says if it gets ordered to series, you get X amount of money. Or if it does go to series and you're entitled to at least this much money per episode produced, once it goes to series, then might renegotiate a new contract or at least a contract based off of the contract they already had. And I can say contract a million more times, but that's ultimately... <laughs> It, that's what it is. There's a lot of contracts and work that goes into the legality and the legal side of things. And that's why BA people are very helpful and very important in dealing with agents to be able to like come to terms and come to agreements on this. But even before that, I'd say we, you know, as production companies, you will often work with a writer or work with an idea or a spec even without getting paid necessarily up front because you know that you will get paid on the line should something happen. Sometimes you'll sign like what's called if-come agreements, which is if you're able to sell something to the line, then the writer will get paid, then the producers will get paid. But at least in the meantime, it sort of gives you both an understanding that I'm going to represent this. I'm going to try to work with you to develop it. I'm going to take it out to these places. And if something happens, then we'll be happy and hopefully something does happen. We've already talked a bit about the differences between network and cable. But can you also speak to how production companies, studios and networks are approaching the changing TV format and series order numbers, moving from 13 to 22 episode seasons to 6 to 10 episodes now, and as well as how that impacts syndication, since syndication, the magic number used to be 100 episodes, and now mm -hmm. you know it's been reducing ever since. <laughs> That's very true. The syndication part of it is definitely more of a studio-based question, and I'm not a studio executive, so I wouldn't be able to talk to that entirely, because they ultimately own the shows, and that's their sort of purview to what they want to do with it. You know, us, like I said, we're trying to protect the creative, we're just trying to make the show the best it can be. And if the best it can be is a 10-episode order, or a show that fits into only six episodes, because there is not more material, and you don't want to stretch it out beyond that, and that's, that's what we care about, that's what we want to do for it. But certainly... The trend towards these smaller seasons, I think, has seen far more succinct and compelling storytelling. And you're going to see shows and certainly, you know, the documents that we develop when it comes to the pitches or the outlines for these series and these seasons trying to tell the story 
as concisely as possible and trying to make sure that you are very specific and very pointed with what you're doing and what the moves you're having your characters make. You know, it's not like 20 years ago when you could have 24 episode seasons, you had so much opportunity to just have them go on whatever journey you want or whatever little extra story and like have a musical episode down the line, which, you know, a lot of shows did and did so very greatly. But I don't think you see as much of that these days because there isn't as much of a pressure to fill the space and fill this much programming. You know, certainly the lower the episodes order that affects writers, sort of what they're paid. And so that was a big uh, argument I know recently on the latest WGA negotiation was because, you know, if you're getting paid a certain amount per episode and then you can expect 13 episodes and you get a certain amount of money, but now suddenly you're getting six episode orders. Now you're not getting as much money. You can't budget for that. And that's bad for the writers. So that is a contentious agreement when it comes to the financial side of things. But from a purely creative perspective, we just want to make sure the show is as good as it can be and, you know, talk to everybody involved in the process and make sure that we're getting our characters where they need to be in, in that allotted time. Are you telling me you don't want to see a Big Little Lies musical episode? (laughs) (laughs) I bet Nicole Kidman would be great singing it. (laughs) That is true. And uh, are you guys keeping sort of like international markets and international appeal in mind when you're developing and, and selling these things through? Is it something that really comes into play on your end? It's interesting. We pay attention a lot to the international markets when you're looking at formats, when you're trying to look for things to adapt here domestically. The idea of can a show sell internationally normally isn't at the forefront of our conversation. Certainly, it's something we'll pay attention to, especially when we get into the studio, because it's ultimately you know their goal to be able to monetize that down the line. And if something they can do that they will be able to sell internationally, that's certainly a great plus for them. But it's not like the first thing we care about after we hear a project is like, will this be able to sell in England? Will it sell in France as well as here domestically? We're concerned about our you know first run here first and then beyond that. And that might change for certain production companies. You know, NBC has a whole international division and they do a lot of work with working title the company to do international sort of co-pros and that sort of um those projects will write and develop specifically for the idea. Like can it be developed internationally and can it be sold? But more often than not we're just looking for domestically first off. So you're now an independent producer. How has that changed things for you and what is kind of your day to day now? Well, it's funny. A lot of my day-to-day is the same, right? I'm still working with writers. I'm still reading scripts and reading material and trying to develop them to be the best they can be. You know, I'm consulting on a VR project right now, and I'm just trying to help it out and, and trying to say, like, okay, I'm coming into it. I know story. I understand characters. I understand their journey. And the way you're presenting this sort of pitch right now, there's more you can do to make this, like, fully realize and to communicate it to the people that you're ultimately going to want to finance this project and say, like, okay, here's the journey you're going to be going on as a viewer And here's how you can augment this presentation to make sure it's compelling for people. So a lot of it is really the day to day. The only difference is I don't have a nine to five at this point in terms of going into an office and I'm not beholden to a particular studio's (laughs) interests, which is good and bad. You know, the idea that the freedom there is certainly is, is great and exciting and it gives me lots of opportunity to pursue and talk to a lot of people on a lot of different projects. But at the same time, without a studio, you know, giving you overhead and financing that you know, sort of everything has to come from my own. And so I have to go out there and try to find the money and try to chase my own income because I don't have somebody just giving it to me a weekly paycheck anymore. So it's a bit of more entrepreneurial mindset. And that's it's been a very different ride than what I'm used to. Have you sort of developed your own brand or taste in material and what a Logan Creedy production would be? <laughs> um, I'd like to think I have. I certainly, I think from the idea that when I was when I was younger and watching TV, loss being a big impact on me and that sort of idea of like 
the genre of it, but also like these very specific characters and these very emotional journeys that they're going on. I think that influenced a lot of me. I think the fact that I worked at Amblin Television when I first moved out here certainly gave me a lot of that influence as well. And Steven and Amblin certainly known for doing a lot of their genre and sci-fi material. I think also I grew up watching a lot of that type of content and horror and sci-fi. And, and I love that stuff. I think I will always spark to that first because I just it's what I watch my free time although I do try to watch everything or as much as I can out there but I do love genre material I love sci-fi I love all those types of projects so those will always speak to me first at the same time there have been projects that I've absolutely loved when I've read like a spec script that don't fall into anything that I care about like I'm not much of a period person I don't like costume dramas historical shows generally more often than not I don't get into but you know, there was a script i read two weeks ago that was period and was historical and set in like the old west and it was riveting and just like the writer the way they wrote it and the way their their tone like captured the feel of this old world and and, and the characters and what they're going through and like what their specific concerns were that you know, something that you wouldn't even think about today like to me it was it was utterly captivating and i loved it and so like you will find things always that don't necessarily always fit in your tone and i'm still trying to develop my brand you know myself but i said those are sort of what i've sort of sparked to most in the last few years and uh I'd love to hopefully keep doing so, that sort of stuff in the future. And so what are your kind of personal goals and aspirations for your career in the future? What's the dream scenario for you? I want to produce entertainment that audiences enjoy. It's very simple and maybe maybe too noble in that. But I just, I want to be people happy. I want to entertain people. I want to tell stories that people are going to really connect to and have fun with. And for me, you know, I've been doing TV since I got out here and TV was sort of my inroads to that. But again, I come from stage and I would love to do something on stage one day. It is one of my dreams to produce a musical one day. I don't know whether that I'm going to do that on stage or screen yet, but I do love the art form of musicals. VR is also a very interesting market that is just now beginning to sort of open up and people are now paying attention to it. And VR is also going to really change the way that writers tell stories and the way that directors tell stories. Because if you're doing a 360 video or a piece that is happening all around you, suddenly, you know, a writer now has to script what happens behind you as a mm -hmm. viewer, because for all you know, your viewers can be watching everything that happens behind you the entire time. And you have to make sure that there's something compelling narratively going on there as well. And so trying to pay attention to how this technology is going to change storytelling and how we can embrace it in like new forms of storytelling to me is fascinating. That's sort of like where I'd love to go is, is and pay attention to like those new media and like new ways to do it. There is a project that Steven Soderbergh did for HBO called Mosaic. I don't know if you guys have talked about it yet here on the podcast, no, but yeah. I've um, seen the billboards up for it. It's mm -hmm. uh well, it's interesting. The billboards uh, are now coming up because now HBO is going to cut it down to a linear piece for airing. But the project as envisioned is that it is a, it's kind of like those choose your own adventure novels you might have read as a kid. And it is entirely app based. So you download it on your iPhone, your iPad, your Apple TV, whatever. And it shows you these episodes. And at the end of every episode, it says, now, which character's journey do you want to follow? Do you want to follow the gay best friend? Do you want to follow the financier and the business partner? And you're sort of like going through all these paths and journeys and like it, you're in control of it. So see, he did it with HBO and HBO is going to cut down a, a linear version that doesn't have sort of the choices and they're going to air that. But like the very fact that you can do that in today's world with like technology that we have today, it wasn't possible 10 years ago. But that is certainly a new form of storytelling. And I'm sure the way that he mapped out that world and wrote the scripts and paid attention to like the outline, the treatment, all that sort of stuff like had to be informed by the fact that the viewer now gets to make those choices. And so for me, that idea is so fascinating. Like how else can we use technology and storytelling? It's it just, it opens up some huge new worlds. And if I can be doing that five, 10 years on the line, that'd be very, very happy. 
I definitely agree that VR is kind of the the cross between active entertainment and games and then passive storytelling and, mm-hmm. and movies and TV. So it's interesting to see where that's going to go moving forward. It's a brave new frontier. Yeah. You're right. And yeah, and, and games have certainly become far more narrative than, you know, in the past, like board games back in the day, right? Clue mm-hmm. or Monopoly are very simple. But then like, even as I talked to you about, you know, um, <laughs> Pandemic Legacy Season 2, right? <laughs> like that is a game that is at its very core is based in a narrative that it evolves sort of the gameplay as you play it because you're changing components that add up to it. And so like you see more of this intersection between games and narrative and gamifying traditional narratives and like all of that. It's, just, it's a very exciting world that we're part of right now. Yeah, it's interesting to think about like what's going to be that first breakthrough or flagship VR project that really mm-hmm. probably like who's the Spielberg of VR or the Shonda of VR, you know, that's, like that's up for the grabs Shonda right rhymes now. of VR. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's actually a really great like point to make. Yeah. Like we don't have the Titanic for VR yet or the avatar for I, VR. I, yeah. I feel like Aaron Sorkin could do an interesting walk and talk VR <laughs> experiment. So that would be very Combine it with an exercise program. Like yes. Yeah, exactly. Uh, going back to writing, what advice would you have for TV artists who are kind of just starting out? Write as much as you can and write often. When you're starting out, no matter what age you are, even if you're starting out at the age of 40, whatever, like that gives you the luxury to make mistakes, right? You're at that stage where you should be iterating all the time. Like somebody very smart gave me a piece of advice once that said, you're at this point where you can iterate and learn from your mistakes. Iterate, iterate, iterate. Like write the scripts, find out what's wrong with them, rewrite the scripts, make them better, give them to your friends, have them read it. Like do everything you can in your power to improve upon your craft, whether that means just writing TV pilot specs or going out and writing a feature to stretch a different part of your brain or even writing short stories or poems because it's still writing and it's still creative and it's still like sort of working those muscles, but it's a different form. Ultimately, all of that will help inform who you are as a writer and sort of the stuff that hopefully you want to write about. Um, and from a little more practical perspective, I'd say, like I mentioned earlier, go out to those uh, – Go out to those uh, those competitions, those writing competitions. Try to get onto those lists. Try to meet the people who decide on those lists or talk to those people who are involved with those diversity programs and those sort of initiatives where you can get some attention or paid attention to for your writing. And of course, networking, but you guys have already done a whole podcast episode about that. <laughs> and uh, and it kind of goes without saying, you know, LA is a town where, you know, who you know is definitely very important. And so you should meet people and you should try to develop relationships with them. And there are a lot of like writer-based networking groups that I think could be useful for people. And do you have any specific advice for writers who are maybe a little bit further along in their careers and they've just started developing something with a producer or an executive in that process? I would say keep an open mind, but at the same time, do care about the project you're doing. Don't just take every single no. And I'm not trying to say that to shoot myself in the foot for having writers like mm-hmm. just, you know, always fight back on something. But if it's something that's very important, you know, just like Alex, you had asked earlier about like a network, you know, might be trying to exert their control too much over a project that we're selling. You know, it's our job to protect it. And it's your job, certainly as the writer and the initial creator, your ground zero, right? Like is your job to protect that as well. And if you're working with producers and they're going in a direction that you don't feel is right for the project, have a conversation first. Certainly try to be diplomatic about it and try to see it from their side and see if there is something maybe you're missing. But definitely care about your work and care about the characters that you're creating, care about the journeys you're sending them on and care about what you're trying to say with your craft. But ultimately, this is a people business and as a business where you're working with a lot of different people. And so just be amicable and be respectful and be open to notes when they do make sense. And just, you know, if you are new with it, don't be afraid to ask people, I'd say. Certainly, 
everybody I've noticed in the industry is very nice and always very willing to help you out or answer questions or certainly share their perspective as well. And if you're a first time writer and you're working with a producer and say you don't have a rep yet, for instance, ask them to introduce you some reps because I'm sure they know agents and I'm sure they know managers who might be looking for new clients and be looking to read material. And just because of the fact that you're working with them on a project, that might help you sort of get this way into getting represented yourself, which is obviously not the end-all be-all for writers, but that is an important step. And then you have somebody you can bounce ideas off of and talk even when you're unsure about things. Just be a person <laughs> and, uh, and be friendly. Are there any kind of traits that you think are important or necessary to someone who wants to break into the entertainment industry, whether as a writer or an executive or anything else that would help them in that process? I would say persistence is the number one trait for anybody, you know, even for, for, for writers or development executives or aspiring producers, or if you want to work in post or director, like any part of the industry you want to be in, persistence is one of the number one, like key things for me, because things can happen if you work hard enough. And if you, you know, keep your head on the ground and you, you keep working at it, there are a lot of people I know who would just like leave as soon as like the going gets tough and they, they'll just like quit way too early. But you have to show that you actually really want it. And actually, so somebody I know from my grad school is an example to talk about persistence. She came out here and she didn't work in the industry for a couple of years. And she moved to LA because she wanted to work in the industry. And she ended up getting a job at a motel, just like working at a front desk. And this was after a couple of years. And you would think after like six months or a year, somebody might be dissuaded and try to like, okay, I'm going to move back home. I'm going to try a different career. But she was very persistent about it. And she was determined and she knew she wanted to work in the industry. And so she made sure that she stayed here in LA and she kept networking. She kept doing it. After that motel job, she found her way into the mailroom at CAA. And then from there, she got onto a, an agent's desk and she became coordinator. And now she's one of the top young comedy agents there at CAA. And it's like, it really, persistence can pay off and you just have to be determined and work hard at it. Yeah, everyone has a different path and you never know which way you're going to get mm -hmm. into that or how long it might take. So like you said, it's so important just to keep at it. Never just, give up, never surrender. <laughs> yeah. All right, before we go, we got a couple last questions for you. Uh, number one, is there anything on TV that you're watching right now that gets you excited? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a lot of good shows out there, and I do try to watch a lot of TV. There's a couple of good ones I, I would want to point out right now that really are interesting to me. From a comedy perspective, we talk about like Network, The Good Place is just fantastic. I know you guys kind of just broke that down. It's just such a good, good show and so unique for a comedy too, because it's so serialized, right? And just a different form of what you expect a sitcom to be. So I'd highly encourage people to go ahead and watch that. Also, if you want to like see an example of a multi-camera breaking the format or kind of reinventing or certainly pushing it. Netflix's reboot of One Day at a Time is amazing. Part of what got me into it is because I'm reading Norman Lear's autobiography right now. <laughs> and, you know, the original show certainly was very important and pivotal in its day. But Netflix's reboot is talking about so many issues and doing so in a way that is funny at the same time and is so applicable to like people growing up and families today that I think it's just absolutely an incredible show and i wish you might see more shows like that on broadcast sometimes yeah, it'll also make you cry which is like <laughs> not something you can say much about like a multi-cam sitcom right? yeah exactly um, yeah it does feel like a stage play at times in the best way like, right that's what multi-cam is yeah and then from the drama side there's two hour longs i want to point out one which is slightly more comedic is a uh, craziest girlfriend on the cw certainly people i think know about it because it's comedic and it's a musical and it has musical numbers which is all fine uh, but this season in particular has gotten so into talking about depression and this character's journey and what she's going through and how it's not just a simple fix and there are things that do matter to her and that like she has to figure out a way 
to actually address them and seriously talk about them, like ways that weren't addressed in the previous two seasons. Like it, to me, this season, the show has really come into its own, even though there were some really fantastic musical numbers in prior seasons, but talk about like the character and all like this season is really fantastic right now. And then also there is on Netflix, one of the most exciting recent things I've been watching, although it's not really a recent new show, there is an Australian show on Netflix right now called Glitch. It has uh, six episode seasons, uh, and they've done two so far. I assume they're going to do a third at some point. And it's kind of the sci-fi show about a bunch of bodies that essentially come back to life in the small Australian town. And you're trying to figure out whether it's something that's happening through science, through this company that is sort of this shady organization that is uh, sort of doing experiments, or if it's more supernatural. And it has a very compelling emotional journey, too, because one of the dead bodies that comes back to life is the former wife of the lead character, who's a cop, and he's already been remarried, and he has a baby on the way with his new wife. So it's a very, uh, it can be very wrought at times, but very unique. And when you talked earlier about international formats, like that's a great show that I think would do very well here in the States if somebody were to uh, do a remake of that. Yeah, I actually just started watching that when I went back to Australia <laughs> over the break. I was like, oh, I'm, we've got Netflix here. What's on? Oh, yeah. And so I sat down and watched it with my mom. And yeah, we both loved it. And yeah. it's really funny, too, because I'm from a small country town in that state where it's set. Mm-hmm. And they mention it a couple of times. They're like, oh, we'll get to take her to the Shepparton Hospital. I'm from Shepparton. It's like a town with like <laughs> 50,000 people or something. It's like, yeah. yeah so. <laughs> is it a Netflix Australia original? It is not a Netflix original, no. no. It is, uh, I think it's ABC is the company in yeah. Australia. Yeah, I think it's that. And it's Netflix just got the rights to broadcast. There's it. a production company in Australia, which is very successful called Matchbox Pictures. And they do a lot of shows like that. And I think uh, like Clever Man, which was on. Oh, yeah, Clever yeah. Man. Mm-hmm. I remember yeah. that one. There's a bunch of things that are they're coming over from them. I think even like Wilfred and whatever was them. So. Oh, you're right. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and also talk about international stuff. Uh, there is a great show that is on Hulu that I think was from Channel 4 over in England. It's on Hulu right now here in the States. If you want to watch it, it's called Trust Me. It is a four-episode show uh, starring Jodie Whittaker, who you might know here because she's about to take over for, or she just did take over for Peter Capaldi in the role of the Doctor. Yeah, and Doctor Who. But this is the show she did right before Doctor Who, and it is incredibly compelling. And she plays this uh, nurse who essentially fakes her way into getting a doctor's license. And now she's confronted with everything that she has to deal with because she is not a trained doctor. And even though she's a fantastic nurse, she's put in situations where she has to operate on people and do all these medical tasks that she has not had any experience with. And the way she performs is just brilliant and amazing. And if you like Jodie Whittaker, you like English shows, it's on Hulu. It's called Trust Me. It's already on my queue. (laughs) (laughs) All right. One last question for you, Logan. Do you have any resources, be it books, podcasts, apps, whatever it is, that you think that our listeners may find useful? So since we're on a podcast, I will, uh, I'll definitely mention some podcasts because I love podcasts <laughs> and I consume way too many of them. I'll also mention some writers list, but podcasts, I mean, definitely your guys is, is fantastic. And I think what you might call the older brother of your guys' podcast or so script notes, which I'm sure you guys are both well aware of. <laughs> certainly that is a great podcast. And, you know, even though I'm not a writer, I listen to both you guys and script notes religiously because it still talks about story and it still talks about character and it still talks about things that are important in my job and my role and my capacity to like dealing with story issues and, and giving notes on characters. So I'd absolutely recommend both you guys as paper team and script notes. But also, if you care about just being a little more in tune with the industry and what's going on out there, KCRW, which is a local radio station in Santa Monica, has a podcast called The Business. They put out, used to be all about the feature side of the business and the industry, and they used to have a separate one called The Spinoff, which was all about TV. The Spinoff ended its run earlier last year, and they kind of rolled everything into just the one podcast called The Business, but that's a fantastic one. And there's also one from NPR called Pop Culture Happy Hour, which is 
talk about TV shows and movies and books, you know, sort of in the zeitgeist right now, what people think about them. And they have this roundtable discussion, which is just, just really cool to hear other people's perspectives on the same sort of stuff that you might be consuming. Like, for instance, they watched Three Billboards, which I absolutely loved as a movie, and they hated it. And, you know, just because people have different opinions does not necessarily mean one is right or one is wrong. But hearing somebody else's perspective is certainly helpful and good to think about. So I definitely recommend those. And then from a writer's perspective, the lists that are out there, like the writer list, the blacklist, the blood list, like all these are you know, compiled by people who do work in the industry. I'm sure we've all heard about the blacklist. The blood list is a version of that just for like horror and genre content. The writer list is all female driven. You know, there are so many of those out there. And I'd say they're all publicly available. So young writers should pay attention to the people who are getting onto those lists, or even more so pay attention to the material that's getting on those lists. And they're publicly available. So go and find those scripts and read them yourself. Because by reading the scripts of the people that are making onto these things, and the people that or in the industry who are voting on these and saying like, these represent some really fantastic pieces of work, then you're going to learn something yourself. And you're going to learn like, what makes a genre script really stand out? Or what makes a script stand out so much in the feature space that film executives are voting it to be like the top of all the unproduced ones in the last year? Like, there's a lot wealth of resources to learn from those scripts. And I'd say pay attention to those lists, because you can definitely learn a lot from them. And then soon you'll be on it. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. So thank you so much, Logan, for joining us. And thanks to all our listeners for taking the time to tune in. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 74. If you want to leave us a review, please do. We would love that. You can do it at paperteam.co slash iTunes. And all of those reviews will help us attract new listeners and build our little paper team community. Thanks again to our sponsor, the 2018 Tracking Board Launchpad Pilots Competition. Paper Team listeners can use the code paperteam, all caps, all one word at the checkout to save $15 off their entry. And you can learn more about all of the Launchpad's current competitions and exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And as always, I'm on Twitter at tvcalling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Are you on Twitter, Logan? I am at Logan Creedy. If you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions about this awesome episode, you can send them to ask at paperteam.co. And next week, we are doing another episode about networking called Putting Yourself Out There. Yeah, it's about how you really be proactive in making those connections and, and getting yourself on people's radars, just like what we were talking about. We'll see you next week. See you then.